If you will go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation 21, I'll be doing a quick sermon here as we continue on our series on the end times and the staff pastors have been kind of guiding you through what happens in the life of the believers as as Pastor Cameron's been tackling those that do not believe and we come to the end and as a person who loves stories, I love stories, I love writing stories, I love reading stories and I love watching stories, the ending is very important. In fact, you've got to land the ending, because if you don't land the ending, you feel like you just wasted your time. And now, i, I got to say something, and I'm not hopefully going to get everybody mad at me. Uh, hopefully, um, Pastor Tom's not watching this um, broadcast, but let's talk about Hallmark movies. Um, and the great American family channel lose movies. Here's my problem, is there's usually a conflict People aren't talking to each other. Misunderstanding happens. And at the end, they make it right. And it's like the last 10 seconds of the whole movie. They're just there. They kiss. Roll credits. And I'm like, what happens to them? Like, does this actually last? Does this, I mean, what's going on? It just quickly, abruptly ends, and you just don't know. It's just over. It's like, okay, I guess the movie's over. Um I like movies a lot of times that have more developed endings that you can see what happens to the characters afterwards and you see not just the conflict resolved but what happened afterwards. And a, a good example that I love to give is I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy movies and if you get the extended version of The Return of the King, which is the last one, which is four hours long and I get that, that's a long time, four hours long, the conflict is resolved they go to a scene, and as it fades out, everybody thinks that's the end of the movie. But little do you know that there is 18 minutes left in that movie as they go from ending to ending. And every time that thing fades, Jenny would be like, it's almost over. It's over. It's over. <gasps> no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. But I love that because I wanted to see what happens afterwards. And here's the beauty of what we read in the Bible is that at the end of Revelation, we get to see what happened afterwards. There's beautiful symmetry here. Because when you open up your Bible and start reading in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, things are perfect. God has created the heavens and the earth. There's no sin. There's no troubles. In fact, he says it is very good. Everything is right. Then Genesis 3. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. Pain enters the world. Suffering enters the world. And you go through the whole Bible as you see all these things playing out. And yet there is a creator who loves his creation. And there is a creator who will not let the enemy win. And he's working through all of human history. And it culminates with Jesus. And then the story continues on. But eventually, as we read in Revelation, the enemy is dealt with. Sin is defeated for good. Death is gone. Pain and suffering is gone. Revelation 21 and 22 deal with afterwards. And I love symmetry. Two chapters, 
in the beginning of the Bible, two chapters at the end of the Bible, where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no pain, there is no suffering. Instead, you have what God is going to do at the end of human history. So let's read it, these first five verses in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there were no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What this passage is talking about is what um, theologians often call the eternal state. And this is what's happened at the end of human history. Satan has been dealt with. The enemy has been dealt with. But that's not the end. Because then God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And unlike the first time in Genesis, we will be there to see how God does it. And he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth for us to dwell in our resurrected bodies. And a lot of times we think that our eternal state is going to be up in the clouds, floating around with with long robes and harps. But that is not the case because we are going to experience this new heaven and a new earth in our physical bodies like we are right now. That as we can walk out and see trees and see God's beautiful creation in this fallen, messed up world, we will one day walk the new earth in our physical bodies and experience God's creation. But we'll experience it without pain and without suffering, without death. All those things are gone. It will be a glorious experience. It'll be like nothing we have experienced here. It'll be the way that God had in the way God had it at first in the garden. Now a lot of times we want to know all the details of that. What's that exactly going to be like? Is it going to be like this earth? Is it still going to be the same layout? Is it how the relationships with people are going to be exactly? How are we going to live and where are we going to live? What are we going to do? And we know we're going to serve Jesus, but what exactly does that look like? The truth is, is we are not told those details. And you can speculate, and it's fun speculating. There's books that have been written that speculate that stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we just don't know. All we know is that we're going to have a real experience on a new heaven and a new earth that will last for eternity. But here's the number one thing. God could have given us all those details. He could have said, this is how it's going to be like. But instead, he focuses on something else, and it's in verse 3. Let's read it again. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And then even when you look in verse 4, and God shall wipe away all their tears. What God wants us to know about our eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth 
is that God will be there right next to us. Now, we experience God in many ways, and we've experienced God in this building through services, and that's been incredible. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God would come upon places, and that was incredible. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about something even better. God himself will be face-to-face with us, and he will be with us, and he will live with us. He will dwell with us. He will walk with us. He will wipe away our tears. Not an angel, not another saint, but God himself. And to be in his presence like this is something that we can't even fathom or comprehend. And we will experience this through all eternity. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more sin. No more death. All those things are gone. And all things will be made new. By God himself. Who is with us. This this is the end of our story. And I just want to encourage you, no matter what you're experiencing now, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the end of your story. Eternal glory with God himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we will spend eternity with you if we have repented and believed in your gospel. And God, I pray that as we look forward to that time, we will not be discouraged by what we see around us. Our hearts will not grow weary for what's going on in the world, but instead we will be encouraged to make this truth so real in our lives that we will spend an eternity with you on a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, help us to recall your goodness and let us sing of your goodness and worship you as we continue this service. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. We are looking at and have been, this is our final Sunday, of looking at unveiling the future, unveiling the, the end times. We have looked at a number of passages. We've often been in Revelation, but we've also been in Zechariah. We've been in Matthew. We've been in in the book of Daniel, throughout the scriptures, looking at some of what God tells us about the end time. We've seen, as the pastors have shared, what God is doing in the lives of believers during this time. And then in the sermon, I've been dealing with what is taking place on earth in the life of unbelievers. It can be a little bit heavy at times. It can be a little bit uh, burdensome as we think about what those who are unbelievers are going to experience. But if we only focus on the bad things that will be taking place during this process, we will miss one of the key things that God is saying to us, and that is the expression of his mercy and his grace and his love throughout it all. I'm glad that the gospel will be going forth even during the tribulation period. The Bible says that there's a great multitude that comes out of those who have trusted Christ as the word is preached. Who all those are, we don't know. But there will be a number that says in this passage that is past the sands of the sea. As we've looked at this, I want to remind you that the book of Revelation itself is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
in my Bible at the top, in the, in the writing of it, not in the inspired scripture, but whoever put the title calls it the revelation of St. John the Divine. And it is the revelation to him, so in that sense it is of him, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the important thing we need to remember. And as we look at this passage, as we look at these events that are taking place, it should always point our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, we have seen Christ returning. Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse of sword proceeding out of his mouth. And with his word, he defeats the armies of the Antichrist. He defeats the armies of this earth. In this return, as we see the, the, uh, the focus on that Christ's return, there's two things that take place in that passage that are included in it. One is the restraint of Satan. In the first three verses of chapter 20, we won't take the time to read these, but the Bible says that Satan himself is chained in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He is restrained and he is chained to not be active on this earth. There are those who think that that is the case now, but you don't have to look hard around this world to see that Satan is very active in our world today. In fact, the Bible says he's like a roaring lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But at this point, he will be restrained. He will be chained for a period of a thousand years. We also see in Christ's return, part of that's involved in that, something that's mentioned here in verses 4 and 5, is the resurrection of the tribulation saints. It says this resurrection will take place. And it says this is the first resurrection. The Bible only speaks of two resurrections. One is the resurrection of the just. One is the resurrection of the unjust. The, the resurrection of the just is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 23, where Paul says there are essentially three stages to this resurrection. He says Christ is the first fruits. Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead was the first evidence that there would be resurrection from death. And then he says, and then those that are at Christ... In the rapture, Christ comes for his church, and there is the resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he says, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, and then those at Christ coming at the end when he puts death under his feet. That's what this is speaking of here. And so there's the resurrection of the, those who have died during the tribulation. In fact, he describes them in verse 4. He says that they were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God. They didn't worship the beast. They didn't worship his image. They didn't receive his mark. This is a very specific group of people. And then notice that the thrones are given. We see in verse 6 through verse 9, and really some of the verses before, the revelation of Christ's rule on this earth. For a thousand years, Christ will rule on this earth. And he says in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, that they, the only plural antecedent of this word, is the armies from heaven that come with Christ. And they rule together with Christ during this time of millennium. This, the word millennium simply speaks of a thousand years. And it's a time on this earth when Christ will rule. Going into this kingdom going into, it's really the fulfillment of the kingdom promises of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the only ones entering in will be believers. But because there will be no death and no sickness and there will be perfect environment, there will be many people who are born 
over a thousand year period, there will be many generations. So that at the end of this thousand years, we see the second part of this rule, and that is Satan rebelling against the rule of Christ. In verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. He'll gather them together in battle, and he said they go up from the breadth of the earth and compass the camp of the saints about the beloved city. And notice this time there's no, there's no, um, there's no battles, there's no war, there's simply fire coming down from God and defeating the enemy. This thousand-year period will do what exactly every other period in history has done, and that is show that man will always fall for Satan's lies. And the reason that we fall for Satan's lies is because we want what Satan offers. We want to be our own God. We want to be our own authority. And after a thousand years of perfect conditions, with a perfect ruler, with no Satan going around, and living in that perfect environment, at the end of that, people will still do what man has done since the very beginning. They will listen to the lies and deception of Satan. And that will be the final rebellion that Satan will muster against God. If we moved on into chapter 21, Pastor James did so well in doing that this morning, we would see the restoration by Christ or the rest with Christ or the residence of Christ. You could say all of those things that take place in those future events. But I want to focus your attention this morning just for a few moments on verse 11 through verse 15 as we see what is unveiled, what is revealed is Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. In verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote of the story. He said there was a theater where there was a fire that broke out backstage. And he said as the fire broke out to warn the crowd... They sent the, the clown of, that was part of the show, they sent him out on stage, and he tried to warn them, but they thought it was a joke. And so they laughed and they cheered. And so he warned them again, and they continued. They just laughed and cheered even louder. And Kirk, Kierkegaard said, I believe that that is the way the end of the world will come. It will come to the applause and the laughter of those who think it is simply a joke. I believe he is right because I believe that the way our world takes the truths of Scripture and the warnings of Scripture, and even some believers take the warnings of Scripture very lightly, but I also believe that they will be wrong because at the judgment seat of Christ and at the judgment here, there will be no laughter. There will be no mocking. There will be nothing to joke about. It is a serious scene that lays before us. And so as we look at this this morning and we see the revelation of Christ's righteousness, I hope that you'll draw your attention to it 
because I believe it is a challenge to us, but I also believe it should motivate us to greater worship and great joy. I want you to see, first of all, the setting of this judgment. It reveals the righteousness of Christ. What is the setting as we look at this scene? First of all, it's a setting. It is a fearful moment. It is a fearful moment. He said, from him who sat on the throne, from his face, the earth and the heavens fled away. There will be no snickering. There will be no laughing. There will be fear in the hearts of those who know that they are going to face what they have done in this life. There are those in our world today who commit all sorts of sin and they joke about it. Or they stand before an earthly judge and they have a smirk on their face. But here the earth and the heaven fled away. There is no place to hide before the judgment of God. It's a time of fear. But it's also a time and a moment of fairness. He says that they will be judged, every man according to their works. Every person who stands before God will get exactly what they deserve. There is no injustice in the just one. There is no falseness in the one who sits on the throne. And everything that takes place... Now, there are those of us who are in Christ who will get less than what we deserve, but we will get exactly what we deserve. I will not get what I personally deserve, but because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ... I will deserve what his righteousness deserves. And so everyone will get exactly what we deserve. It will be the most fair judge, judgment that has ever taken place in this universe. I don't care if you have the most fair judge sitting behind the bench, the one who is most objective. Human justice will always fall short of pure justice and pure restoration. But here, Christ in his judgment will be perfectly fair. No one will ever be able to say, I did not deserve this. It's a moment also of finality. And this shows the righteousness of Christ. This is the end. There are no appeals in this court. There's nothing that says we're going to push this further. This is God dealing with sin ultimately once and for all. And it will be the final word. But the righteousness of Christ is also seen, we'll notice it, in the sentence that is passed at this judgment. The sentence that is passed. What is this judgment that takes place? Well, first of all, it is Christ who is seated at the throne. He is the one who is the judge. John chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Acts chapter 17, all tell us that God has committed judgment to the Son. In fact, that is part of what takes place in Revelation 4 and 5 when they're looking for one who is able to open the scrolls. The one who is worthy is the lamb that was slain. He's not only going to pour out his justice on this earth in the day of God's great wrath, he has earned the right as Christ and as the Son of Man, he has earned the right to sit upon the throne of judgment. He is the one who will finish this. He is the one who will do this work. Christ will judge, and those who are judged here will be those who are unbelievers, those who do not know Christ as their Savior. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ, I'm not saying, I'm not talking to those of you, well, I'm not a Baptist, not about being a Baptist. I'm not a member of the church. Those who are believers should be members of the church, but that's not my point either. 
Those who stand at this judgment will be those who have died in their sins without the righteousness of Christ. And all they will have to clothe themselves before the just eye of God himself is the robes, the rags of their righteousness. And the Bible says that all of our righteousnesses, plural, are as rags in the sight of God. Not just rags, but filthy rags. And there's only two ways that you can stand before God. One is in the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and the other is in the rags of the self-righteousness of your sin. And those are those who will be standing there. They will be judged. You'll notice in verse 12, what are they judged by? What is the sentence passed from? Well, he says the books were opened. What are these books? Well, it's according to Scripture, these are the word of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the words that I have spoken will judge you in the last days. God's word will be the measure by which our works will be evaluated. Not by culture, not by what's acceptable, not by what is tradition, but by the word of God. That will be the measuring of this justice. How did we live, or how did these people live according to the word of God? But there's also books that says they are judged according to their works. There's indication in Scripture that there are records of what we have done. There are records of our actions. And these books are opened. And he says they are judged, every man, according to their works. There will be an evaluation. The evidence that would be presented will be a perfect record and a perfect writing of all that we have done, all that these people have done wrong and sin in their lives. You're talking about a sobering moment. The most self-righteous Pharisee will stand at this judgment. Many of those who sit in, sat in church pews every single week or sat in church chairs every single week will stand there and they will expect for nothing but good to be read, but every sin that they have committed will be in that record. And that will be a part of this justice. But wait a minute, Pastor, we're not saved by our works. How will they be condemned based on their works? The condemnation is on their works. We cannot be, we cannot be redeemed by our works as with corruptible things. Not, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible is clear, but it also is clear that we are judged by them. And the evidence that will be presented will show that every single person deserves what they are about to get. There is the consequences for our sins. Our consequences, we will either face them or Christ has faced them for us. That's the only two options that we have. And they will face this account of these books. No one from these books will earn an entrance into heaven, but it will be evidence that everyone deserves the condemnation they're about to experience. Romans chapter 1 is clear that the knowledge of God, the invisible things of God are clearly seen in creation. Every person has enough knowledge in them that even if they've never heard the gospel, their works will condemn them from these books. But the most important book and the most important basis of the sentence that is passed is the next part. And this is where every one of us has the opportunity to stand. And that is to have our name written in the Lamb's book of life. I love the song that the choir sings sometimes. I know that my name is there. Do you see what he says? After the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged out of those things that are written in the books according to their works. But then notice down in verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the judgment. That's the basis of it. All that have been written in the book, that book, that Lamb's book of life, is all of those that are saved, all of those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus as their Savior. And they say before God, I do not try to stand in my own righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we say that, God takes from us those self-righteous rags and He gives to us what He describes in Revelation 19. And that is the righteousness of saints. He clothes us in the white robe. And that is the righteousness that we can stand before Him. This is the righteousness. This is what God is doing. And this is the demonstration of that righteousness, which points us to the third thing that shows Christ's righteousness, and that is the salvation from this judgment. If I only knew the truth of this judgment, that would be a heartbreaking thing to have to stand and preach. But this morning, I want you to know that you don't have to stand at this judgment. You don't have to stand in this moment before God. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. But for believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be judged, and we will be saved no matter what our works, yet so as by fire our works may be burned up, but we will still be saved. But those who stand here, you don't have to stand here. You don't have to be in this moment. You can have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is the demonstration of Christ's righteousness, that He will do what is right. He will not just pour out unmerited justice and unmerited uh, uh, wrath. He will do that. Will not the judge of the earth do that which is right, the Bible says? And He extends to you the moment... This week, as folks have come through our Judgment House presentation and they've heard the gospel and they've stood at the judgment scene and they've seen what hell might, some thoughts of it. And look, we know that we cannot display precisely what those things are like, but we can communicate the truth that the judgment is a real place and hell is a real place and heaven is a real place. This morning, you don't have to stand at this judgment. You don't have to... Go to the lake of fire. God in His mercy and in His grace and His love has provided the means to escape all of that. And your name can be written in the book of life. Are you glad your name's in the book of life? What does this do for us? The salvation from judgment. It points us to the grace and the love of God. The grace of God extended to the person of Jesus Christ in which as a just judge he must pour out judgment but in a merciful father as a merciful God and a loving God and a gracious God he has sent his own son to take the judgment that we deserve. Christ on the cross Jesus Christ came to this earth, the Son of God, God Himself, and He came to this earth and He went to the cross and He endured all that He endured to suffer the wrath and the justice of God in our place so that you don't have to. This morning you can 
Tell God and acknowledge that you are a sinner. God, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your justice. But I believe that Jesus died to take that wrath, to take that justice. And I want to receive His righteousness. I trust in Him as my Lord and my Savior. And when you do that, then you are clothed in the righteousness of God. And you are, you are, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And in that moment, you step from justice into grace. That's, the, that's the, the grace of God, the provision that God has made so that no one has to stand in this judgment, but many, many will. There will be some standing there on that day, maybe somebody here this morning, and you think you're a good person. Well, I feel like I'm good enough to get by. No, there is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there will never be a greater demonstration of it than in this moment, when there will be those small and great that will stand before God. And there will be some that have done good works, and they will say what Jesus said they will say. Lord, have we not done many miracles in your name? Have we not done good deeds and good works in your name? And he said, he that sits on the throne will look at them and say, I am sorry, I never knew you. What a tragic word to hear from the throne. I never knew you. Your name can be written in the book of life this morning through God's provision. But for us as believers, this is also a demonstration of God's grace and love. Why? Because this is the final scene. This is the final event of God's work of redemption before the final period, before the final state before that eternal state that Pastor James preached about. It is this final moment when God will completely restore things back to the way He designed them to be, to a new heaven and a new earth. The former things have passed away and all things will become new. Notice what he says in, over in chapter 21, in verse 5. Who is it that says, Behold, I make all things new? Who is it that says these words are true and faithful? It is He that sat on the throne. You see, God's justice is not just in meeting out what they deserve. It is also an extending grace. It is an act of the judge. It is an act of the great white throne that God makes all things new. And that is what stirs my heart. That is what I rejoice in, is the God that began. Before time began, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And He was the one that was there. God's preparation and God's provision to restore what man would do. And from the moment man sinned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, God's work and God's plan was already begun. And it was already headed to this point right here when God would say, you can ruin my creations Satan. You can ruin my universe, man, but I am going to restore things to the way I intended them to be. This is the final event. Everything that is wrong will be made right. Everything that is old will be made new. Every suffering will be turned to glory and everything sad will be untrue. We can rejoice in this final and ultimate justice of God because this is restoration this is restoration. Human justice cannot restore. Human justice can mete out justice. And they can say, this person can be punished because of what they have done, but it cannot restore. A family has a loved one that is murdered. 
And justice can say the, the, the criminal, the one who is murdered, will be put into prison or their life will be taken or there will be some punishment. But it cannot restore what has been taken away. God's justice not only meets out justice to the unjust, it also measures out grace to those who have been justified. And I am glad today that I have been justified by God's righteousness and by God's grace. And I am standing in His grace and in His righteousness. And I will stand before Him, not in the choice of my righteousness, but in the robes of Christ's righteousness. And I can rejoice in the fulfillment of God's redemptive work. You see, all that God has been doing, God is not absent from this world, folks. God is present in this world. God is actively involved and engaged in all. When, when man around is sinning and man is doing all that is wrong and man is trying to accomplish his task, and it doesn't matter if it's building a tower at Babel, it doesn't matter if it's crucifying the Son of God, it doesn't matter if it's following the Antichrist, God is still in control, and He's in control of my life, and He's in control in your life, because He is taking us to that predetermined point when we will stand with Him, and everything will be restored, and everything will be new, in a new heaven and a new earth. And I can rejoice today because this is the moment when sin will once and forever be done away with. And every sin that has ever been committed and all the effects and consequences of that sin will be wiped away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. All of those things, all the former things have passed away. I am thankful for what is yet to come. I will point your mind just to one, one final thought. It is from this point, it is from this point that we enter into the presence forever of God. He will dwell with them and He will be their God and they shall be His people. It is in that moment that not just us as individuals, but the church and all that are alive will be restored in Adam and Eve, it was two, but in us it will be untold numbers and multitudes of those through the years, through the centuries that have been brought in by the grace of God. We will be brought into perfect unity and communion with Christ, with God. And that will be the blessedness of eternity. The judgment of Christ, the judgment seat, the white, great white throne judgment it is a moment for us to ponder. It is a moment for us to make a decision. Will I stand in my own righteousness? You don't have to. God's provided and made it possible. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, in a moment we're going to have an invitation. And I don't care if you're a member of a church. I don't care if you've called yourself a Christian. None of all that matters. What matters is have you placed your faith in Jesus? Is your name written in the book of life? You can walk down the aisle. One of our pastors will take the Word of God and show you how you can make sure of that. Or right where you are, you can pray. And you can tell God, God, I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. I know in my righteousness I cannot save myself, but I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I'm trusting Him as my Savior. Right where you are. Christian, let me ask you something. What's your priorities? You see, those that we care about and those that we love about, nothing else matters but what they will answer 
is your name in the book of life. Nothing else matters for our children, parents. We can have everything in this world. You can give your children everything in this world, but if their name is not written in the book of life, what does it matter? Our friends, our family, those around us, how we spend our time, how we spend our effort, all that we do matters nothing in the light of eternity. May God grant us to see this world through the eyes of eternity. May God grant us to be able to see things from a heavenly perspective. Because every person apart from Christ will one day stand at this judgment. Father, I pray this morning that you will speak to us. Lord, I pray for Christians that are taking things too frivolously. I pray for Christians that have family members and friends and children and spouses and neighbors. And Lord, they're interested in every other part of their life, but they're not concerned about their soul and if their name is written. Father, I pray this morning for those that maybe are here and they've never trusted you as their Savior. May this be the moment when they respond to the message of the gospel. Lord, they don't have to stand in the judgment. They don't have to stand at this judgment. They can stand in grace. And I pray this morning that they will do that. Please don't let anything distract or hinder anyone. Father, maybe someone's being drawn this morning to worship you in your greatness and your glory and in your righteousness. To see that all that is taking place in the past, all that is happening now, and all of this that will happen in the future is about your righteousness and your grace and your love and your mercy. Father, may we bow.